Product managers give 100% of themselves to their customers. But who's there for the PM? The Product Management Center at the University of Washington. It's a global hub for knowledge, community, and impact. I'm Jeff Schulman, founding director of the Product Management Center and your host on this show, How to Succeed in Product Management. Each week, I'm joined by my co-host, Red, and some of the best product managers in the business. Together, we're having candid conversations that help you understand the challenges that a product manager faces, how they overcome them, and the tools and frameworks that will help you thrive in the role. So let's start the show. So let's get started if everybody's cool with that. So my name is Jeff Schulman, and I'm a professor at the University of Washington's Foster School of Business and the founding director of the Product Management Center, which is a global hub for knowledge, community, and impact started because we've got some amazing students, we've got some amazing alumni, access to some of the best PMs in the world. But this global hub is not just for University of Washington degree students, it's for everybody. And one of the things we try to do is every week help everybody learn how to succeed in product management. So we have this weekly series, thanks to Sumeya and the Weekend Product, who created space for us. And today, we take a different focus every week. And today, our focus is on fintech. So what are the similarities and differences when you're a product manager for a fintech company or product? How does that relate to other industries? And in addition to my co-host, Red, and our resident expert, Sumeya, we have two product leaders from fintech. And I'm going to reverse order. Normally, I start with Red to introduce us, but I'm going to introduce himself and then Sumeya. But I'm going to start with Ambika, who set this up today. Uh, Ambika, tell us a little bit about yourself and the products you work on. Certainly. Thank you. And Jeff and Red, thank you for the opportunity. And Sumeya, she's the great. So I'm happy to uh, share the stage again with her. Harman, thanks for joining. My name is Ambika, uh, and I am a product manager in the fintech industry. I am I work for a big bank, U.S. Bank, and I'm responsible for the digital deposit segment. So that includes any type of deposit products or checking, saving CDs. Either you apply that on the web application, so like on the on, on your desktop or on the mobile platform. So we have our own app as well. And also I do customer acquisition, so which is like new account opening as well as onboarding. So once you have opened the account, how do we welcome you to online banking? So all of that big sphere is under my portfolio. Oh, I should also say before U.S. Bank, I've been part of other fintech organizations such as SoFi. That was one of the biggest one. I spent about almost three years there. And uh, prior to that, I was in investment banking. I worked for Goldman Sachs. So with that, I'll pass it over to Hartman, if that's okay. Sure thing. Hey, Amika, great talking to you again. And really nice meeting you, Jeff, uh, as well as Red and Sumaya. So I'm, I'm Herman Mann. I head up our product and our design team here at Bluevine. Bluevine is a fintech that is focused on small businesses and building the next generation banking platform for them. And so we started off basically in 2013, really focused on helping small businesses get access to capital. Recall right after the Great Recession, a lot of the banks tightened up and that's where the crop of fintechs came out. And so we did that, launching our line of credit product as well as invoice factoring, and now we are building the uh, digital banking platform for small businesses built exclusively for them. My background before this was I spent a number of years at Zero, which is a small business accounting platform. That's where I really got more interested in fintech and going deeper on FinWeb is what we call it there. But my background is in engineering, and so I was a dev way back when in Seattle at Microsoft 
in Redmond. And I ended up staying there for about 15 years. And I headed down south afterwards to basically do this, to, to have different startup experiences. So that's a little bit about me. And I'll pass it back over to you, Jeff. All right, Herman, welcome. Thanks for being here today. And Sumeya, our resident product expert, they know you by now, but just give them a little bit about your background and what products you're working on. And then we will kind of keep relying on you to keep the conversation grounded, saying, you know, what is similar from what you hear from Herman and Amica and what's different in terms of the products that you've worked on in your uh, many years delighting customers. Thanks, Jeff. And I think one of the maybe parts you don't know about my background is that I spent six years at Ernst & Young and a couple of years as a startup co-founder, specifically in the fintech industry. So I'm excited about this conversation and happy to join you all. I am Sumeya Binganem. Currently, I'm a products management leader at VMware, where I build tech products for different clients. My current one is actually Humana. Uh, <laughs> so there is an insurance side to that conversation. And, you know, through my 20 years experience working in different verticals, I appreciate the nuance that comes with financial services. And I'm excited to participate in this conversation today. Thanks, Jeff. All right. So Sumeya has been here. We've been here, Sumeya, myself, and Red every week, I think since February now. And I'm still learning something new every time, not just from the insights she shares, but learning more about you, Sumeya. So sorry to have missed that part on your bio, but really glad to have you here with a broad perspective to chime in. Now I want to kick it over to Red, the co-host who's also here every week. But before I do, I want to give a shout out and a tee up for Red to talk about this. We have two volunteers here today, a former student of mine and a rock star PM at Qualtrics, Aaron Bowen, who is going to be taking notes and sharing some uh, takeaways from the conversation, and also Sophie Gong, who's been a, a regular guest, a regular participant in these conversations, and she's also going to be taking notes to make sure that no nugget of truth and insight gets left unshared. So Red, can you share a little bit about yourself? Uh, tell us about that red circle and tell them about how they could see the live takes from Sophie and Aaron. Absolutely. So first of all, that red dot up top is not me uh, congratulating myself on being a primary color. No, that is a signal that today is going to be recorded. So if you can't see the whole time, sad, but we do actually turn this into a podcast that you can find under the same name as today's event. Just Google how to succeed in product management or look it up on your Spotify or Apple. Also, in addition to this, giving you a voice beyond today, we have a Slack channel. And very exciting that University of Washington has created an opportunity for product managers, whether you're at the UW or you're beyond in, in your career as a product manager and you want to get involved in a community of other product managers, there's almost 600 of them currently sitting in Slack. And if you'd like access, DM me, find me on Twitter, see that weird looking triangle down arrow on the bottom right of your screen, you can click on that and back channel me and I can send you a link right to the Slack channel so you can jump on in there and start asking questions. In about 20 minutes or so, we'll open up the floor for questions. But in general, if you're a PM hungry for community, we can make that possible. Everybody on stage today and beyond. So I'm one of the advisors uh, and a passionate individual who cares about the success of product management and we're here to support you today. Back to you, Jeff, and hopefully I didn't miss anything. Awesome. I, I didn't even know about this new feature, which is probably going to cause me some trouble. But fortunately, I just have to talk. And then you, Red, manage the stage for us, which is I'm really appreciative of you bringing people on stage and, and getting their questions answered. So I'm going to start with Herman. 
if you don't mind, why don't you tell us a little bit about what you think makes fintech unique? What are some of the challenges that you face that you feel are unique to uh, the products that you're developing? Yeah, I think um, fintech is a really, really interesting space. I think there's first, I think when you look at what exists there today, specifically around the incumbents in the banking industry in general, it's quite antiquated. A lot of the rules that came in through FDIC, through the SEC and whatnot, they were made for a time when there really wasn't the internet. And so you're seeing that there's a lot of opportunity there to really innovate. Uh, When you start thinking about just like money movement in general, uh, the fact that ACH is, is decades old and how money movement happens there. When I talk to friends that are in the UK or Australia and they're able to move money through their banks immediately, it's just a, a really different, different opportunity that we have in front of us. But with that, because it's highly regulated, there's also a lot of, you know, bureaucracy maybe is the wrong word, but there's just a lot of gates and doors that you got to go get through and jump through to make this all happen. And so I think where fintech is really just a huge opportunity is basically the size of that opportunity, along with the unique factor that you just really have to work within kind of the the box, if you will, and all the while pushing the envelope forward and, and trying to find something that, that just works for the audience. And then Amika, do you have anything to add to that of what makes fintech unique? I would just echo that it is a very highly regulated industry. And so mistakes can be complicated and problematic. So yeah, again, I don't know of a better word than bureaucratic, but how to say that in a nice way is just experimentation can be tough because of the regulated aspect of the industry. But if you can figure it out, the opportunity is bigger because it's not easy to innovate as well. So we can go into examples a bit later if you like. And then Sumeya, are there parallels to other industries that you've worked in or helped? I know you help a lot of product managers along their journey. So are there any other industries that have similarities to what Herman and Ambika said are unique about fintech and maybe dive into how you deal with those challenges? Yeah, absolutely. I think the industry that I always think about in parallel with financial services is the healthcare one, not just from a regulatory perspective, but also from a risk tolerance and risk acceptance perspective. So when we think about experimentation as PMs and the kinds of experiments we can run, having someone lose their money or not receive a transaction that's important to them is just as bad as you know, giving someone the wrong information about their blood pressure or their other health information. So to me, those are two industries that have a lot in common. The automotive one as well, not just from a regulatory perspective, but also a risk tolerance perspective. I see them having similar mindsets. And then the last item that I want to bring up here is when I look at how legacy financial services companies work and how products management figures out within those companies, it looks really different than the tech industry. So beyond just the similarities between different verticals, I think it's so important to note that if you look at the job description of someone who works in fintech in general, especially, you know, legacy financial services, you will notice that the kind of structures and organizational autonomy and impact that a PM has there looks really different than technology in general. Yeah, and just adding to that, I think one thing that, Smea, you, you actually pointed out is really true is, is the healthcare parallel. I'd also argue that 
with what we're talking about here and with fintech and what we're doing, in many cases, it's almost as fundamental as just electricity, right? And so while we are doing something and trying to, to really push the envelope, either with healthcare or with fintech, the challenge really is to do it in a way that can be trusted and to do it in a way that is really stable and reliable, right? Because you can imagine if we are building a digital platform for banking, but then small businesses can't access their money or their balance suddenly just goes out of flux or they can't move money between parties, that is really problematic on many fronts. And so I think fintech, like from that standpoint, the also the other thing I would say that is interesting and challenging is, is also making sure that you're able to go do it uh, in such a stable and reliable way. Thank you. And so last week, uh, this is Jeff speaking again, and last week we talked about assumption mapping. So we got super tactical. Sumeo is telling us how she thinks through assumptions and that, how that assumption mapping then leads to experimentation. And so I want to turn to Ambika, if you don't mind. You've just said fintech is more heavily regulated and it's a little, it's not as easy to experiment. So what do you do exactly? How do you kind of work through your assumptions methodically without getting kind of held up, wasting not wasting time, but thinking more than doing? Sure. So in terms of experimentation, I think I'd like to start personally, again, this is my view. Personally, I like to start with understanding what is it that I cannot do and their consultation with compliance and consultation with our legal advisors in terms of what is the law and what can I not do. Once I understand that, everything else is up for negotiation in terms of experimentation. So then I can bucket my experimentation in a few buckets First would be UI. You can just do simple like A-B testing in terms of which, let's say, design is more appealing or which font is more appealing. So those are simplistic. You don't need any compliance approvals. Another could be, uh, can we phrase some KYC question? KYC is know your customer, and that's a legal requirement in the United States and most countries to know who your customer is that you're doing any transactions with. Some of those are non-negotiable. And if you are framing them in a different way, you need a lot of people's approvals. Then the second would be content. Can we phrase things differently to make it more welcoming to our customer? And then the third way is we call it under the glass or any of the risk rules we have. If we want any experimentations around risk rules, then again, you need risk, credit risk, you need compliance and legal to make sure that we're not breaking any of the legal rules, especially around fair and responsible banking, but that's also possible. So A-B testing, again, it depends on which bucket and who are we targeting, which target group. And then depending on if it's credit risk, UI, compliance-oriented questions, you need different stakeholders at the table. I prefer doing UI experimentations more rapidly because it's faster for me to execute without any approvals. But some of the below the glass, which are all the risk rules we have, whenever we tweak them slightly here and there, they tend to either approve more customers or decline more customers. And those can have more like wider impact as well in terms of like what is our product and can we expand it in different tiers or not. So yeah, depending on what it is, it can be an easy execution or a lengthy execution. And that segues to my question for Sumeya. How do you balance tackling the easy experiments and kind of trimming around the edges versus those higher risk that take longer to get approvals, but could fundamentally change how you do business and maybe have a bigger impact than a lot of small changes. So how do you prioritize how much time to put into trying to get approval for the big experiments versus uh, taking the easy road? Yeah, this is a really important question because I think if you talk to a lot of PMs, 
in financial services, that comes up as one of those, you know, frustration areas where there is tension, where you don't have a lot of control uh, and you need to rely heavily on your regulatory partners or um, the teams to unblock you. There are a couple of things that come up here in terms of skills. The first one, when we talk about influence without authority, this is an area where you have to have a lot of understanding of the different dynamics about who are the people within the organization you need to leverage for what, you know, for example, escalation. When do you escalate to your leadership to get someone, the managing director, to step in and help you? Or how do you even set it up from the beginning so you get a little bit of momentum and support, help with pushing your agenda forward? Because there are a lot of other competing priorities and you want to make sure that your agenda is also visible and constantly worked on. So that's one, definitely uh, the influence without authority piece. And then the second one, when it comes to prioritization and the work you do on a week-to-week or, you know, sprint-to-sprint basis... Understanding how to organize and how to, you know, when when you talk about critical path, for example, that's something that a lot of project managers do. But even as product managers, we should have a little more understanding of it because sometimes you can kick some of the regulatory stuff ahead of time and get it worked on and then stagger the things that don't require regulatory review, for example. There is a, a lot of maneuvering that happens there. And I have a lot of appreciation for both of those skills in PMs, especially in these kinds of environments. Herman, do you have anything to add to the conversation regarding how you do experimentation and then how do you prioritize the big experiments versus uh, some of the ones that don't require as much approval? Yeah, yeah. I think um, I agree with everything that was said. The one thing I, I would say that as you experiment, I'm, I'm stating the obvious here, but I just want to state it anyway. It's You need to be very clear on what success looks like. And when you're doing that, you want to make sure you have the right measurements in place, whether it be for an onboarding funnel or for an engagement metric, just to make sure you have that in place. And then equally as important, I would say that not to fall in love with the experiment that you're doing, no matter how much time you've spent doing it, and to be able to go pull that ripcord when needed. So that's the one thing I would probably just add to that, you know, that is pretty obvious, but nonetheless, I just wanted to state it. And then in terms of prioritizing experiments, I think it really, at the end of the day, it depends on what business criteria or what is the thing that you're trying to solve. I think on our end, just because, you know, we are a startup, we need to move really fast just to frankly compete. And, and that is our, our advantage. We take a slightly different tact. We obviously care about regulation and we, and we want to work with our partners and make sure we're within that framework. And assuming that's the case, for us, there's a lot of quant qual uh, that we do across user research, whether it be with existing customers or with new prospects, we'll, we'll get a lot of that data. And then what I'll say is we typically have maybe 20 to 30% of the data of what we need. And then we'll start experimenting and playing with that to see actually how it plays out uh, in the real world or how it sticks with customers. So we're rather nimble just by necessity because we are a startup and and that's basically how we approach things. I, I love your answer because even within financial services, there is that nuance. I have a question on that, for example, 30% you brought up. Um, Are we talking here about, for example, statistical significance kind of experimentation, or are we talking about other types? 
Yeah, often like it's not statistically significant in terms of the data that we do have, but I'd say it's directional. And so what we'll do, for example, is we may do some quant analysis across 100 or 200 of our customers just to see, right, or to reach out to 100 or 200 of prospects. Now, if you look in the grand scheme of things and the number of potential prospects out there, it isn't significant, but it directionally tells you. And basically, a lot of this is also just, if you look across just qualitative interviews and and studies as you do, often, you know, as product managers, I think many of you will resonate that after the first 10 or so, you start seeing a lot of common patterns, right? And it doesn't tell you the universe of exactly what you need to do, but it gives you directly enough room to move forward. And so a lot of our mindset here is to find that balance because, you know, our, our, frankly, if if we had 80% of the data, the data would tell you exactly what to do. And, and I think as product managers, part of it, when people ask me what I look for in, in a product manager, it's two things, right? Um, I'm going off tangent here, but it's somewhat related and I'll loop it back in. But it's like grit and intuition are the two things. So one is you will end up getting no for a lot of things. But if you feel convicted, you got to go push forward with that. So that's a grit part. And the second part is intuition, when you're given 20% of the data, will you make the right decision 80% of the time, right? And so that that's an attribute um, that, that I certainly hire for, and, and that's something that we try to do here uh, within the company. that answer your question, Sumaya? Yeah, I do. I do have one more follow-up, Herman. So when it comes to a quick clarification on your scenario, the experimentation, again, we're talking about here, how big are the bets when you're uh, thinking about, you know, the two options, let's say A-B testing or different options available to the user that then give you directional information, how big are the bets, number one? And then number two, I'm curious about the just how mature is the product? Yeah. So, I mean, so what I'll say is it really varies. Um so it could go from something really small, like I want to go change, uh, add an extra page here in my onboarding funnel through to, I want to build a brand new product line to go do something, right? And so it really it really depends. What I would say is in both cases, obviously, if it's a, a smaller one around onboarding, then we're fine with getting less data and we will experiment, right? And, and there's something easy to go experiment with there in terms of AB. I guess the second one that I'm talking about here in terms of the big bets, if we were to go build a new product line, it's less about experimentation per se, in the sense that you're not really doing an AB testing against anything, but what you're really doing is seeing whether or not the idea sticks, right? And seeing whether or not you want to invest more in. And so we do try to figure out kind of what that true usable MVP is, obviously, after we do our research across our, our customer base and, and we try to get some quant data from it. But ultimately, it is it is a, a bit of a, a guess and a bit of a learning and an observation there before we continue investing even more and more resources. Did that answer your question? Yeah, absolutely, Herman. Thank you for that. I think the culture of learning is definitely important. However, you get there. Uh, based on the constraints you have is where the nuance is. So thank you for the clarification. Yeah, absolutely. So for those just joining us, my name is Jeff Schulman, founding director of the Product Management Center at the University of Washington, a global hub for knowledge, community, and impact. And 
we have a Slack group that all of you are welcome to join. And so if you've just if you've missed some of the conversation, we have two volunteers taking notes and sharing them in this Slack group. So you could be following along at home, even if you've missed some of it. Uh, so big shout out to Sophie Gong and Aaron Bowen. And if you want to get into that Slack group, find Red here on stage and DM him and he'll get you an invite link. Now, before we get Red's moment in the sun where he gets to bring you up on stage. So if you have a question, get ready to raise your hand in a moment. Uh, but first, I wanted to ask Ambika, can you talk a little bit about product innovation and what does innovation look like? How is it defined in the fintech space? Yeah, that's a good question because financial services in general in the United States, are, you know, it's very well regulated and mature. So innovation can be difficult. I have experienced innovation in the past. As, so I worked at a company called SoFi and SoFi is known to have come up with a new type of financial product called student loan refinancing. So before SoFi, there was no such thing as student loan refinancing. You just got loans from your federal government or private issuer, and then you just paid off. There was no refinancing product. And I, I mean, I wasn't there when uh, in the early stages. I came in after a series like E, I think. But it's something that I still admire to this age that these founders, they were going to school at Stanford and they decided, oh, the interest rate is too high to pay off. Why are we paying 9% interest rate to the federal government? They decided to send an email to a couple of alumni and said, hey, will you refinance our loans? And the answer was yes. And then came social finance, uh, i.e. SoFi. So that's how student loan refinancing came about. So when we worked at, or I worked at SoFi, it was very much in the culture to like, look at your everyday problems and come up with how to solve for that. And my problem when I was at SoFi, it was that I used to live abroad and I had just come back to the United States. So my, I didn't have a very well-developed credit score. So I needed to get a personal loan and I decided to co-sign with my dad. And I thought it was really odd that at this age, I'm having my dad co-sign just because I don't have like, you know, credit score X. And so that was my personal problem. And I decided to use that use case. And I, you know, use our own data at, at SoFi to pitch a product called co-borrower personal loan. Because back then, SoFi only had a single borrower personal loan. So using that use case, again, it was in the culture of like, figure out what is your problem and how will you improve it? Pitch solutions. So there was that culture of like pitching and innovation. And that product ended up becoming a huge product line for SoFi. It's still in production today. So for me, innovation in fintech is figure out what is your problem again and uh, look for how will you solve it for yourself and then expand it for solving it for others. So that's how I define innovation. I'm curious how, Harman, you're handling this in the B2B space. Yeah, I think very similar. It, for me, it's it's one identifying kind of what what the business opportunity is, right, or what the real need is from the customer. So to your point with SoFi, you identified you know, the founders identified what that need was. There's always something, right? And when we think about innovation, often we think about the Teslas of the world, right? And what they're trying to do. We think about something that is just groundbreaking or just doesn't exist. I think fundamentally it just gets back down to, is there something there that customers actually want? Is there a market fit? And then you pursue it. And so it's really about identifying what that is and then um, figuring out exactly what success would look like, right, as, as part of building that and building the thing and, and seeing uh, whether or not it works and then, you know, making iterations as need be. On the Bluevine side, as I look at what we've tried to do, I mean, we just think about where we started in 2013. So the company started, Ayal, who is the co-founder and CEO, he grew up in a small business. His dad was a physical therapist and his dad was making 
roughly about a million a year uh, in New York City. But he was seeing his dad just scramble when it came to banking and getting access to capital. Uh, the big banks just weren't attending to him, right? They look at the five million and up in terms of the business, and they want to optimize on that. And so, despite the fact that he was running a real business and, and credentialed, uh, he was running into to issues. And so, what we did to start off with. And innovation at that time was was really around invoice factoring, right? So one of the biggest issues with invoice factoring, if you're familiar with it, is after I've done the work, if I'm a small business and I'm supposed to get paid from an Amazon or a Microsoft, it'll often be net 30, net 45 day terms. And to get paid that long, I got to make payroll, I got to pay taxes and all that. And so I need to be able to have capital up front. And so that's what invoice factoring solves. But if you think back in 2013, what the issue with invoice factoring was, was it was a really offline process and it was a really long drawn out process as well. So it was something that small businesses might actually hear back in weeks as opposed to you know what Bluevine was trying to do, which was to change it into hours. And so that was really innovative in its time. But it was stemmed from the fact that there was just a market need and a demand to go solve a problem. And so for me, innovation really is less about the new shiny thing about creating something that is net new, but it's more around solving something for customers today that, that is really elegant in a way that, that really meets their need. In that way, I don't think it's that important, you know, when it comes to thinking about the different industries and how innovation comes up. So uh, I think that's, a, that's an important point. I was also thinking about a really important factor in the innovation you know, equation in financial services, thinking about Plaid, for example, and Stripe, and how their success was really, you know, the, the timing factor there and how changes in regulation uh, allowed them to, to grow and to provide a service that was really important. So when thinking about the pain points, to your point, it's not just about the pain points you have today, but keeping an eye on the changing landscape, specifically in regulations, and finding opportunities to leverage you know, an opening or a change in regulation that creates a new opportunity. Yeah, absolutely. And and sometimes, you know, the when you're thinking about what you want to do and, and what you're going to go build there, that also forces a, a change in legislation as well, right? And regulation. I mean, when we think back at just a t typically like a totally different scenario, just think about Uber, right? When Uber first started and Airbnb, I mean, you're now seeing the regulations kind of catch up, social media around Facebook and so forth. So I think one can push the other and the other can can push it too. So it, it really depends. All right. This is great conversation. Love it. But now it's time to let the audience get some questions in. I appreciate you answering mine and answering that of your fellow panelists. Red, this is your time to shine. I know you get uh, bashful or shy or whatever the right word is whenever I tell you it's your moment, but it's your moment in the sun. Uh, so tell people what to do, how they could do it, and let's get this show continuing and rocking and rolling. Absolutely. So if you are curious about something, if you have a question that you'd like to ask the moderators, this is your chance to press the little button at the bottom of your screen. You see a little hand over a notebook. Click on that. When you come on stage... You have an opportunity to ask a question or if you want to contribute to the conversation as well, that is helpful. In addition, please make sure you have a profile picture so we know you're human rather than alien or beyond. And more importantly, that your bio is relevant 
do a product or business. Every week, we like to rip on someone who's irrelevant. So if you're a dentist, this is not your room or your yes. week. <laughs> no more life coach is, is no longer the, the punching bag here. That's good, right. That's right. Up, of course, of course. I mean, I imagine there's some product management element of being a dentist, but I do not consider that scalable, although scalable was a pun I just made. That being said, there's also a Slack group. So if you're bashful or shy and you want to ask a question, jump into the Slack. You can either message me directly or you can go on Twitter and DM me for access to it. So with that in mind, please raise your hand if you have a question or if you want to come up on stage. While we're waiting, there are two people that are working around the clock to make sure today's show is successful as we're recording it and want to make sure all the notes represent the conversation today. Obviously, if you're in Slack, you'll see Sophie Gong hitting up all the notes and dropping them into the events channel. But also we have Aaron, who proposed a question at the top of the hour. And uh, Aaron, you know, to start the conversation representing you as you're feverishly taking notes, this is one for Herman and Ambika and Sumea. Not curious, or oh, I'm curious to see maybe if the fintech angle works, but the question is how or if the emergence of retail trading, so thinking like Robinhood or Coinbase, has impacted your respective product areas. So the question is really, uh, and maybe starting with Herman, how has retail trading impacted your respective product areas? And this is a question being answered or asked by Aaron, someone who is volunteering to take notes for today. Yeah, on our end, because we focus on small businesses, it doesn't really impact us, right? So this one's an easy one for me, which is, you know, with our business, it doesn't impact us at all. Yeah, I mean, I'm currently working for a big bank and trading or brokerage is not part of my portfolio, but companies like Robinhood, they do impact. But, you know, Robinhood, they usually focus on smaller, like, they, you know, they're not looking at 100,000 plus that people are looking to invest in an individual account purposes. So for big banks, they all, they tend to go for institutional investors or high net worth clients. So I'm not personally sure how much it has impacted U.S. Bank, like where I work. But it definitely is companies like Robinhood, Stash, they have taken up market share. They are shaking up the industry and for the better, to be honest. Where I worked previously at SoFi, uh, you know, companies like Robinhood actually inspired product managers there, I think, to innovate at a faster speed. SoFi also has an investment product. And uh, I think SoFi actually beat Robinhood to market in terms of partial stocks that you can get. Let's say Amazon, it's like, I don't know, $3,000 or so, or maybe more, but maybe somebody doesn't have $3,000 to purchase one Amazon stock. They can get partial stocks. So I do know that, you know, companies like Robinhood have led other, other competitors to, uh, for speed to market, but my personal portfolio is not impacted by retail investors today. And so let me follow up on that question that was posted in the, the product management center Slack channel more broadly. When you see a company in like an adjacent field innovating and having a lot of success with certain innovations, how does that affect your roadmap? Like, do you try to incorporate what Robinhood has done into what you're doing in any way? Or do you kind of stay zero focused on, or hundred percent focused on customers? Uh, so how much does success in an adjacent product or, or company industry, uh, how much does that affect your roadmap? Yeah, why don't I go first? I wouldn't say it necessarily affects our roadmap, but obviously we watch it, right? If it's in an area, whether it be an adjacent business or whether it be a different vertical, I think there are some things that you can go learn just around 
um, just the environment and, and specifically what is working. So I would say that we keep an eye on it and we watch it and see if there's any parallels that we can go draw in behavior. But I wouldn't go as far as to say it'll definitely affect our roadmap because we obviously feel pretty convicted about what we're building, right? And so, and, and we have to uh, stay convicted or else we'll just get really distracted. And so that's probably the way that I would uh, describe our, our approach. Any thoughts on that matter? Yeah, I think this is a really good question just in general around competition and how do we PMs think about competition and how do we keep up to speed and how do we consider competition in our roadmaps? I think in general, that's a question that I know if you talk to different PMs, you're going to get different answers on. My take on it is uh, you focus on your customer. Your customer is going to tell you what's important to them. And sometimes your customer is going to give you competitive insights and tell you why they might like a competitor more than you. And that will help you stay up to speed. But having said that, I'm also the kind of PM who who has alerts <laughs> on the top competitors or on keywords that are really important to my customers and the personas of my different users. And so I like to be up to speed on that information and allow some of that competitive movement to just percolate and keep it at the back of my mind as I'm talking to customers and trying to understand the solutions or discover the problem that really matters for us as a business. So yeah, I think there is a lot to be said here about how do you consider competition in your roadmap in general? Well, Sumeya, you've said it best, and I think I'm not taking credit for this quote, But you've inspired me to state out loud that what I've heard from product management is that your number one competitive advantage is your customer. So if you're a product manager who's doing a good job of listening to your customer, everything you just said holds absolutely true. If you're someone who's not doing a good job of listening to your customer, uh, ask yourself if you're at a happy place in your current role as a product manager. Hopefully I'm not creating too much blood in the water with that one, but that is an adage that I've been blessed to, to see in the wild as true. Merrily. I see you jumped on stage, someone we've talked to in the past. Welcome back. Do you have something you want to add to this original question, or do you have a question of your own you'd like to ask to the moderators? Hello, hello, everyone. So great to be here. Yeah, maybe uh, I do have a question. It's something I came across a couple of days ago at work. To introduce myself, I work in AR, VR at Google. I've been an AI and very technical product manager for many years, eight years now, and I came across two days ago, the users and the customers actually disagreeing with what I wanted to build. So Sumeya, it goes directly against what you just said, but call it hunch, call it a gut feeling, call it Steve Jobs' original quote when he said, hey, users don't know what they want until you show them. I decided to just go with my intuition and just build it anyway and go back to them with the actual thing I was building and ask them again the same question, like, hey, what do you think about this? Would you use it? And truth is, when users saw this thing I built and it was actually a reality, they said, oh, this is great. So I'd love to hear your thoughts if you ever came across the customers just being a bit negative and not being sure or market research not being great and how you went about it and if you did what I did. I love that question. I want to see the floor to Herman and Ambika if you want to answer first. 
Yeah, absolutely. So, so yeah, so uh, Marilee, I've experienced what you're saying specifically. I think the way that I would actually say is in many cases, like understanding the customer for me is, is paramount, right? It's, it's our job as a product manager to really understand customers. I feel that customers really understand the problem they're having, but they're not the best at telling you how to solve it. Right. And so it really depends on ultimately how you're getting that data from them. Uh, for me, a lot of it is really understanding their pain points so that I can come up with a solution that works. And, and an example I have is, you know, when I first came down, I was joining, I joined a company that, that was focused on more or less social CRM uh, at the time. Facebook was huge. Uh, Twitter was huge and whatnot. And one of the things was we were selling an enterprise solution to some of these huge mainstay insurance companies, right? So we're talking State Farm, we're talking Allstate. I mean, they're not the fastest moving customers out there. And, and a part of it was, you know, we were looking to solve some problem and all they really wanted, like the aha moment for there was, was what they were really trying to do was have access to this one feature sooner. And so what they wanted was, to make this button more visible. And ultimately what I realized was that wasn't the real thing. Like they were proposing a solution here to make this more obvious, but the reality was was we just had to go change our compliance flow so that they didn't even have to see it. And so that was like just a really small example of something where customers know what the problem is, but not necessarily exactly what the solve is. And so it's, it's always a, a bit of a tricky thing when you listen to them and, and whatnot. But you know, getting back to your point, I have in many cases just felt really convicted about something and decided to move forward right now. That's not always the case. That's not the, the main case. Most of the time, you know, the Venn diagram, there is a decent overlap between what they're asking and what you're proposing. But in those cases, if you feel convicted and strong about it, I think you did the right thing by pushing forward. I want to tease out a couple of things in this answer or in our general user-centered design or user focus or whatever you want to call it, listening to the user. And I want to break it up into two parts. The first part is around the discovery of the problem. And if we are talking in terms of absolutes and in product management, absolutes really don't work. So let's say 80-20 rule. When thinking about the problem and discovery, I think listening to the customer and going with what the customer said, 80% of the time is going to be the right thing to do, specifically, again, in the discovery stage. When we're talking about solutions, that's where it gets uh, a little more murky. <laughs> so as long as you really understand what your customer's problem is, then coming up with the right solution is going to you know, require intuition, that product sense we talk about a lot, innovation, you know, thinking ahead. Your customer is not always aware of the different uses of technology. Just think about, for example, AI. When we were talking about that 20 years ago or 15 years ago, no one really understood what that meant, how it was going to apply. And if you showed your customer, what that means, they probably would have been like, yeah, I don't think that's going to work. But if you actually built it and let them use it and play with it, then they can see the value in it. So when I think about the psychology, for example, the psychology of users and you know behavioral economics theories that I use in my own work, for example, revealed 
versus stated preferences is something that influences a lot of what I hear from my users around the solution. What, what that means, again, is my customers will say specifically around a, a solution that they like, oh, I am going to buy this, but then at the end of the day, they don't end up buying it. Or I am going to use this, but then at the end of the day, they download it, but they they don't use it. There are all of these kinds of behaviors that you see happen that, you know, over time you're going to, as a PM, you're going to pick up on, yes, you need to listen to your customer, but only up to a point. There is a point where you might know better and your data will show you <laughs> that you know better. I think there is a lot of nuance there in talking about listening to the customer when it comes to the solution. Thank you. These answers were great. I love your point about AI. I, I was teaching a class AI and I asked someone, hey, what is AI? And I got all these random answers that had nothing to do with AI. And that was a couple of weeks ago. Well, thank you. These were great answers. I love the 80-20 rule. So yeah, really appreciate it. Great question. And, and you're always welcome. Please come back often. We're here every Tuesday at 4 p.m. I see another familiar face, I believe. Esther, coming in, looking like you were driving a car or an airplane. Hopefully, you're not doing that while you're asking your question. Could just be an old photo. But uh, the stage is yours. Uh, what do you have as a question? Thank you, Red. It's a helicopter, actually, but I'm not driving it. I'm a passenger. <laughs> very good. Very good. So uh, how can we help today? What's the question? Okay, I have two questions. I don't know whether we have time. But I'll start with my first question. Okay, so early on in the introductions, you know, everyone did highlight uh, regarding about the nuances in fintech that is highly regulated. So I would just like to ask, what do you see as best practices for product management to make sure that when you're developing products, testing products, that is um, always in compliance with, you know, because the regulation and, and the rules are also ever-changing as well, evolving with the industry. So how does product managers like keep up to date and just, you know, making sure that in their process that the products are always in compliance yet, you know, without having too many obstacles or, you know, hin or hindering the innovations behind product management. Hey, Esther. So I what do you see as a best practice? That's a great question. And just to make sure we have room because the show is coming to a soft close, and we have another person on stage. If okay, let's limit it to that one question. And I think you've got sure, right. two sides of the spectrum. You've got a giant regulated bank and you've got someone serving the SMB where you can't afford to make a mistake. So I am very curious about the dichotomy here. Um, I'd love to start with Ambika and then uh, pass it over to Herman if possible. Sure. Um, so from a big person or a big company perspective or a big bank perspective, I have a bit of a luxury here in the sense that there are a lot of people who work at the bank where I work. And so um, I have a lot of people I can consult. So even in the compliance organization, there are many stakeholders. I have not one, depending on what the policy is. Let's say if it's fair and responsible banking, I have some specific organization that I go talk to regarding this is my work. What are your thoughts? One of the best practices that I can share is that we have almost monthly cadence. Um, for all for the entire deposit segment in terms of what we are working on. So there are different pods and we have, you know, prototypes that we're currently either designing, iterating, or work is in developments. So we do a meeting with them to showcase what we're working on and get them to give their, get, provide their feedback. 
there is that's an informal best practice that we have. The formal process is it's actually a pretty lengthy process of getting approvals. There are 28 different teams, for example, that I need to get approvals from before I can launch something that is customer facing. And there is a proper mechanism that you go to to get all those approvals. But to make the formal process better, we have created these informal monthly cadences where they come to also learn what development process is like. So it's helped in terms of them, like risk, legal, compliance, to understand how software development works. And then it makes the formal process go smoother. So relationship management, so may I hit on it earlier, uh, is very key in product management, especially in a big bank. But I did work in a a small company, a a startup earlier, and there you have to be almost best friends with your compliance and legal team because there probably aren't that many. And if you're working on a big launch, you want to make sure that you're consulting with them at the time of ideating, like when when your ideas are being generated, not even when you're prototyping. So it depends on the company to company, but I'll pass to Harman with that. Yeah, thanks, Ambika. Um, Very much echo what, what you just said there. So for us, it is partnering closely with our internal partners, right, which is compliance and legal. They understand all the regulation. They're closest to the trade bodies, whatever it is, and they understand specifically what can and can't be done. So this starts from the point of ideating and and all the way through to your build and your delivery, right? And it goes anywhere from the product through the marketing collateral through positioning, everything needs to happen there. The other one I'll throw in there for us as well is inherently because we don't have a banking license and we, we partner with a sponsor bank, our partners also help us make sure that we're up to date, Right because they are dealing with the regulators uh, ultimately because of the arrangement that we have. And so both internal and external, it's, it's you know, with our internal partners, uh, compliance legal and then external on the banking side. And then similarly, there's, there's just different cadences for how things happen. There's obviously a process when we do launch something, again, from prototypes from UI, UX design all the way through to the nuts and bolts of what's being delivered, the messaging, the positioning, the copy and whatnot. And there's a formal process around that. And then there's also just making sure that you keep each other through a a cadence of meetings just to make sure that there's touch points so that you proactively communicate what is in the works, what are you thinking about and whatnot. So both those those methods uh, around connecting with, with internal external partners. Thank you, Esther, for a great question and for the great responses. We have one more quick question. It's rapid fire. And this is aimed for fintech. It's coming from Gordon, a regular guest. He's right there in the yellow background. Uh, He asked me to ask the question on his behalf. For the naysayers of fintech, you're an aspiring product manager and you want to get into fintech. What is one thing you would say makes fintech better than any other industry for a product manager? The one thing that says, I want to be a PM in fintech, and this is why. So this is quick rapid fire. It's one thing, Emicon Herman. And then we'll go to Jeff for closing thoughts. For me, it's to expand financial opportunities to all. So whatever I push out into production, like it's helping other people either improve their current financial life or expand it. Yeah, I think for me, it is you're really making a financial difference to people's lives. And ultimately, I mean, if you are a real naysayer to fintech and you just don't care about that, it's really hard to convince you to be passionate about the problem. But I mean, it's really the opportunity to really make an impact financially to to people's lives, whether it be consumer or small business or enterprise. 
the the best part about your answers is why would there even be a naysayer to fintech? You're changing the world and making it a better place for people who ultimately don't have access to the means to do that themselves. So, Abigail Herman, uh, thank you for answering that. Gordon, as always, for being a regular guest here. Mike, back to you, Jeff, for final thoughts and and really bringing this back together. And thank you, everybody who uh, participated in questions today. All right, Red, thanks for managing the stage and bringing a little humor here and there. You never disappoint. And Marilee, thanks for hopping up on stage with a good question that kicked off a dialogue. And thanks for being on the advisory board for the Product Management Center. Uh, This is Jeff speaking, and it's time to close this up with some concluding thoughts. So everybody should stick around because sometimes the concluding thoughts are actually new thoughts. But I'm going to start with Sumeya, since you have probably have to go by five. Um, We've talked about fintech, and of course, we dived into experimentation a little bit and how it's different, broadly speaking, from other industries versus fintech. I'm curious, what are your concluding thoughts that you would like to leave the listener with? Yeah, I, (laughs) you know, the more we talk about the differences between verticals, uh, you know, financial services and aerospace and in healthcare and tech, the more I also realize that within each one of those verticals, there is really no general rule that's always true. So even within financial services, I think everyone probably picked up on the differences between a startup that's a fintech company versus, let's say, a Goldman Sachs or a Morgan Stanley. And you can even see that come up uh, now in the news when talking about going back to the office and the hybrid office and the flexible environment. If you look at those legacy companies, a lot of them have required people to go back to the office, while the startups have not necessarily. So I think what I would encourage any PM who's looking to consider financial services as an industry to to look at those differences, you know, the big companies versus the startups, the culture, and that's true for every vertical. It's not a blanket statement. So just wanted to highlight that. And thank you for the awesome conversation. All right. Sumeya is here every week on how to succeed in product management. And my gosh, she's really helping a lot of people succeed in product management. Thank you for being here. Herman, this is your first time on how to succeed in product management, but uh, you shared a lot and we all learned from you. What would you like to leave us with? Either some bullet point takeaways or brand new thoughts that you just want to make sure that people who've tuned in to fintech, what do you want them to know? Yeah, I would say that as a product manager, the most important thing is to understand the what and the why of a customer, right? And to be passionate about the area that you're in. And so what I would say is that product management is one of these disciplines that that is, I would say, 80% similar across companies, but the 20% is pretty different. What I mean by that is if you look at a, a discipline like engineering or if you look at it in product marketing, those roles are pretty consistent across companies uh, and across different verticals. However, when you look at product management, it could vary quite a bit, right? Whether or not you're at Amazon or whether you're at Facebook or Microsoft, where I was, or a startup, those roles and what you do will be very different. And so I think that the commonality here, and we touched on this, is always just thinking about the customer and really understanding that. And then just finding your way. That's probably the most important thing that I would say here in terms of product management. And then if I may, uh, one last plug that I did want to throw in here as a last uh, remark is I am hiring and we are hiring at Bluevine. So if you are interested, feel free to DM me. I uh, would be more interested to, to chat with you about that. 
All right. Thank you, Herman. Wonderful to have you here. And since you're hiring, this is a great chance for me to plug a new initiative that the Product Management Center is working on launching this fall. We have an objective to help 100 early career professionals from BIPOC communities land their first PM role by June 2022. It's an ambitious goal, but we're confident that if we could diversify the product management community and make the product management community more inclusive, companies will benefit because more diverse group of PMs will, will create innovations that, are more, that serve more diverse audiences. Uh, so together, we think that if we achieve this goal and expand on this program, uh, we can inspire innovations that universally improve lives. So we're trying to kick off the Inclusive Product Management Accelerator this fall. And if your company is intrigued uh, and wants to help us uh, kickstart this program and really build a more diverse talent pipeline, uh, we'd love your help. This is not just directed to you putting you on the spot, Herman, but anybody who's listening, uh, the University of Washington could use your help as we try to develop a more diverse, inclusive, and skilled product management community. Now I want to turn it over to Ambika, who has actually helped us quite a bit as we try to inspire innovations that universally improve lives. Uh, She was on the second episode of this How to Succeed in Product Management podcast talking about accessibility. And here we talked about fintech. And I want to know, what are your takeaways that you would like to leave the audience with, Ambika? Final one, huh? That's tough. Okay, let me see if I can bring it home. (laughs) So I have been part of startups and investment banks and now a big bank and different aspects of finance. What I really enjoy is building, building new products, but also understanding who the customer are. Harman said that, Somea said it. So I want to just echo, always know what and why, and domain will change, whether it's fintech, health tech, whoever, whichever vertical, it's all about like why you do what you do. But the passion needs to be there because you will encounter so many roadblocks, whether you're in a startup or a big company. For me, the success has been a success factor for me has been just passion and curiosity, asking a lot of questions. And so as Jeff said that I've been part of this organization, actually Jeff and Sumea, they have been inspiration for me in the sense that we have started our own show about FinTech Pulse and we bring different FinTech executives on this show to talk about how they're shaping the financial industry. And Harman was one of our guests. So if you are curious about learning more about the fintech space, you can always tune into our show. It's on Wednesdays at 5 p.m. Pacific. But uh, again, I enjoy fintech because I like to know that I'm improving financial lives of people, not just millennials that I was doing within startup, but now working for a big bank, I'm hopefully improving financial lives for many. So that's what I wake up for on a daily basis. Thank you, Jeff. Thank you. And then I have an ask of both you, Ambika and Herman. Uh, If you could hop on over to the Product Management Center Slack channel, Herman, if you want to post some of those jobs in there, that way everybody who now knows that you're hiring will be able to find those either in the PM Jobs channel or you want to pop them into the events where people are listening and tracking this conversation. And then, Amika, if you want to post into the events to let everybody know exactly where they could find your show that focuses on fintech, uh, that would be fantastic as well, which is a great chance for me to segue to Red, who gets concluding thoughts because, you know, he's earned it. Not only was he on the founding advisory board for the Product Management Center here at the University of Washington, he has also, he and his company, Aptemptive, has helped transform these conversations also to be recorded and shared on every major podcasting app, Spotify, Apple, TuneIn, whatever podcast app, you could listen to these conversations and the ones we've had before and the ones we're having going forward. So by golly, Red, you earned your right for concluding thoughts here. Well, if I earn that right, the way I would use it is to encourage everybody to help grow the product management community. 
That means join the Slack group, help somebody else, pay it forward, create product management karma. I have nothing to gain but seeing more product managers build better products for our future. So if you do that, I'm going to have a happier life and my kids will have more prospects at having a job in the tech community. So that is my takeaway. Support the product manager. They are our future. I have nothing else to add. (laughs) <laughs> All right, Red. Red at a loss for words. What is the world coming to? So as we conclude our show, I just want to thank everybody for coming here today. Thank people for asking questions in Slack. Have to give a shout out to our volunteers, Sophie Gong and Aaron Bowen, who are product managers and generously listened to today's conversation and shared notes in that Slack channel. And we'll kind of post them onto the LinkedIn page uh, so that you could find a few key takeaways if you weren't able to enjoy the full conversation. For those of you who want to get involved, uh, we look for guests here on this How to Succeed in Product Management show. And uh, the Product Management Center at the University of Washington is looking for companies who want to partner with us to develop a more diverse, inclusive, and skilled product management community. We've got some amazing faculty here at the University of Washington, faculty across business and engineering. And we want to make sure that the insights that they're creating uh, get fed right into an inclusive, uh, diverse and inclusive community. And really, as Red said, helps the product manager because it's a lucrative career. Uh, So we want to make sure that more people have access to this lucrative career. And we also know that this uh, product managers shape the future and we want to help them build a more inclusive future, a future where products uh, serve more diverse audiences and are inclusive to more diverse audiences. So reach out to me on LinkedIn if you want to be on this show or if you want to get your company to line up and help us in this endeavor. And otherwise, come on back next Tuesday. Every Tuesday at 4 p.m., we're here on How to Succeed in Product Management. And then you could download the other episodes of the podcast uh, on every podcasting app that you enjoy. Uh, So a big hearty thank you to Red, to Sumeya for joining me every week. I love this. And thank you, Ambika and Herman, for a fascinating and informative conversation about fintech. Really appreciate your time and insights today. Thank you, Jeff. Always love this call. So thank you so much for doing what you're doing. every, And you're so consistent every Tuesday at 4 p.m. So I appreciate it. It's our pleasure. Thanks so much, Jeff, for having me. It's been a lot of fun. Love your voice, Fred, and your enthusiasm. So keep it going. Relentless enthusiasm. There's nothing else but <laughs> right there. Thank you, Herman. Appreciate yeah. it.